0: not just of physical pain, physical anguish, physical healing, but all of the spiritual underpinnings that the story represents. And it is so effective, because here is a man who is completely helpless. He is almost entirely hopeless. And we tend to see him, because of the condition he's in, because we know he is struggling physically, We tend to see him differently than we would a typical able-bodied 18-year-old college student. But spiritually speaking, there is no difference between the two of them. Oh, great, Jim, you've been working out at the gym. Got rock-hard abs. Doing that 90 times X or X-9, whatever that is thing, and, well, you look pretty solid right there, brother, wow. Wow. It doesn't make any difference at all whatsoever. That person, spiritually speaking, short of Christ, is just as helpless, is almost entirely hopeless should Christ come someday and touch them. That would all change. We have that tendency to think that way. Actually, sometimes the person that is doing well physically, emotionally, financially is worse off. Because they don't think that they have a need for Christ in their lives. Sometimes an ailment. Lord, if that's what it takes to get my attention, bring it on. Because you have bigger plans for me in my life. Well, Jesus had just gone through Samaria a couple scenes ago where he met a woman at the well Remember, she went into town and everybody came out of town to see who this man was that told her everything she had ever done. And many people came to Christ and became to believe in him. We last left Jesus in the Galilean region after he had healed a nobleman's son. After this verse 1 of chapter 5, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know what feast it was. There were three major feasts throughout the year in Jerusalem, what we do know is this would have meant that Jerusalem would have been packed. Josephus says that there would have been two to three million people that would have come throughout the world for one of these feasts, Jesus among them. It says at the end of verse one, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches, isn't it interesting how it says, now there is in Jerusalem, not there was in Jerusalem? It is there. That's always the case, by the way. I almost think God sometimes allows archaeologists at first not to find some things that the Bible says are there. So that later on when someone is digging and finds it, just after the critics start to question it, then God can be glorified. Oh, that pool's not even there. The Bible's wrong. But the Bible is right again. The pool is there. 1888, about a little over 100 years ago, just north of the Temple Mount, they were digging and they discovered the pool and the five covered porches that surround the pools. it says there in verse 2, again confirming the accuracy of the biblical account in the book of John. No shock to any of us. But I love that God allows that to happen. This book that we study... It's not just for spiritual insight this is not just to help us in our lives it is historically and archaeologically accurate every single time it's interesting I was watching an episode of house hunters international a little while back and this young woman is moving to Israel now first of all if you're the parents of this young woman you're going what Israel isn't the safest place in the world. I mean, all of the homes she's looking at have bomb shelters. That should tell you something about it right there. But why is she moving to Israel? Because she is a college student studying what do you think? Archaeology. And she says there is no better place in the world to study archaeology. Why is that? Because they can take the Bible, and they can kind of go in this direction as the Bible says, and guess what? They start digging, and they find that the Bible is reliable, that the Bible is accurate. And so many of the greatest events in the history of the world took place in Israel, and yet we know that the document is accurate, just like this pool right here, where it says in verse 3, In these lay, at this time, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So the tradition was, we might say the rumor was, that on occasion an angel would come down from heaven, stir up the water in the pool, And when that happened, the first one to get into the pool would be healed of whatever ailment they had. Sort of, I think, ironic and a somewhat cruel local superstition when you think about it. Because the contest essentially is first one of you disabled folks that can hobble down there the quickest and get into the pool wins the prize, okay? Now, I am personally inclined to believe, and you don't have to agree with me, As always, you have the right here at this church to be wrong if you want to be. That John is merely recounting for us the belief of those around the pool and not necessarily God's actual involvement in the stirring of the water. And I believe that for several reasons. Number one, because this contest would develop a me-first attitude, whoever gets in first. And that would fly in the face of everything Jesus taught. Whoever desires to be first should be last and servant of all. Number two, it's based upon works and not based upon grace. Whoever can will themselves into the pool. God helps those who help themselves, which is absolutely not in the Bible. And most importantly, the focus here becomes on how they would be healed, instead of who is doing the healing. And by the way, just so you know, if you're reading a book or if you're watching a program on television or there's a radio show that you listen to, and that brand of Christianity is more focused on the how than on the who, I think you should just let that go. I'm not saying that there isn't an element to which we study, that there isn't some self-help here to an extent, to borrow a phrase from the secular world. There's some self-help here, but predominantly the self-help is in who he is and not how it's done. Trust me on that. Because once again, as we look at this picture, we see what the world is hung up in, what we talked about last week. The world tends to be hung up in the new craze, the signs, the wonders. Isn't it amazing how someone will wait in line patiently for an external healing or miracle but are not so much interested in the eternal healing that Christ can do, which is a far greater miracle, by the way? It's also an accurate depiction of of the unsaved world here when you look at it. Here is this great multitude, and the idea behind that phrase is, I mean it's wall to wall. It's packed around this pool of sick, blind, lame, paralyzed people just desperately waiting around for some kind of miracle to take place. Think about it, they're sick, just like the world is plagued by sin. They're blind to spiritual realities. They're lame. They're unable to walk correctly with God. And they're paralyzed without the power to save themselves. And this is, of course, the condition of every culture globally, and you and me personally, or anyone we know that doesn't know Jesus Christ, who will be all of these things, who will not see, who will not be able to walk uprightly unless Jesus Christ would come and touch their lives. If they could just get into the water, that was their belief at least, if they could just get into the water when the angel came, then they could be healed. But they lacked the power to get themselves into the water. That is so like the sinner today. If they could just live up to God's perfect standard, then they would be saved. But they are physically incapable of living up to that standard. And so it's fitting then that this place is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of grace. Because it's only at Bethesda that any of us can attain that same type of healing, of salvation in our lives. Only as an act of grace and of mercy. As one sick individual would learn, both physically and spiritually. Take a look. It says, Now a certain man, verse 5, was there, who had an infirmity 38 years. That's a long time. 38 years. 456 consecutive months. 13,680 days. Now, we don't know that he was at the pool for every single one of those days, but the idea here, the suggestion is, he was there for much of it, if not all of it. That is a very long time. It's a picture of hopelessness. If you have not got to the pool first in 36 years, you're not going to get to the pool first. If you couldn't get to the pool first when you were 18, now that you're 56, and you still have the same condition, you're not going to get to the pool. This is a hopeless man in the midst of a hopeless people. And again, although this story is so true, literally all this happened, it is such a great underpinning for us spiritually. Because yes, he is physically hopeless, but he is no more hopeless than someone who is spiritually in need of Jesus Christ. That's why I like the fact that John here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not tell us what he's suffering from. He says it's just some certain infirmity. If he had told us that this man was struggling from Waldenstrom macroglunemia, there'd be two or three people on the planet, perhaps, who could relate with his condition. But he specifically chooses not to so that you and so that me can relate with his condition. He is purposely vague. So that we can look at this and go, oh no, that's me. That's you. Because we might rightly say he's not just physically sick, but like every single person who's ever been born, he is spiritually struck with the terminal disease known as sin. And he's slated to die in that sin unless Jesus would come along as he's about to so this is such a great picture of what he does in all of our lives take a look when Jesus verse 6 saw him lying there that's what our Savior does by the way he saw you just hopelessly lying there it's like the compassion of a child who chooses the runt in a litter of puppies they got a, a kink in their tail ears are drooping, chunks of their hair missing, and the child says, I want that one. That's what the Lord Jesus does for you and for me. Because in comparison to God's glory, every single one of us is a runt. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been in that condition a long time, a long time, it doesn't matter whether he got saved at 8 or 38, it was a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? It's a fair question because not everybody wants to be made well. Now, let me throw out a disclaimer because some people will get mad at me if I don't. I'm not saying everybody that is sick wants to stay sick. Absolutely not. Most people I know who have an infirmity want to be made well absolutely but we also even those of you who have had an infirmity for a long time probably know someone who would just as soon not be made well who doesn't want to have to deal with the responsibilities of life you ever took someone up on that offer will work for food hey sometimes they'll work for food but sometimes they'll say "Nah, can you just give me a couple bucks because they'd rather not And that is even more so, if that is partially true physically, it is way more so true spiritually. Because they don't want to live a different lifestyle. Everybody wants a Savior, but not everybody wants a Lord. There's a difference. I want to be saved, but I want to live according to my way, and I don't want anyone to tell me how to live that way. So some people don't want to be made well. It's a fair question. Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, sir. I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. But that's not what Jesus asked him. He said, do you want to be made well? He says, well, I don't have anyone to help me get into the pool. That's not what he asked you. He offers up instead an excuse as to why he wouldn't or couldn't be healed instead. I can't get there, sir. You don't understand. I have no man to help me. I have no help here to carry me down into the pool. So often, indirectly or directly, we can catch ourselves sounding just like this, sadly. Maybe none of you, maybe just me. Or maybe it's other churches, I'm not sure. But we tend to be that way. I don't have a man to help me, a friend. A counselor. I don't have a husband. If I had one, that would change everything. If I had a pastor with a clue, I mean, no. <laughs> I call the church office and I get the answering machine. That's not true anymore, though, huh? Now you get, I called her robo-admin the other day. Always answers the phone to Sandy. She's doing an excellent job. But this is the problem And, you know, rather than, oh, Pastor beat us up this morning, let's just all take responsibility this morning that we are a generation of people that point the finger at someone else. It's not my fault. It's her fault. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. Well, not in my case. I'm always speaking hypothetically, remember? These are types, illustrations, pictures of. (laughs) But I wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't do this if I had this or that, him or her. I don't have a man in my life. I don't have a help. I don't have a person to help me. And Jesus doesn't buy into that because he is that man. He's always there. Each moment of each day. He lives within me. He stands beside me. He wants to hear from me. Ironic, isn't it? That the Lord is standing right there as this man, as Joe Shoup, is offering up excuses. One commentator said, this sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. Now, I can maybe understand that for this sick man for 38 years, but what's my excuse? not so sure I have one. J.B. Phillips wrote that famous book entitled, Your God is Too Small, because in our minds sometimes we conceive of what we think God is like. I'm telling you, sometimes that God is very limited, very limited to what we can imagine he could or would do in our lives, when in actuality, he often operates exactly the opposite that we would expect. He does things so differently. His ways are not our ways. Even though he didn't answer Jesus' question, Jesus knew his heart. So he says in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. I have to imagine that when he first said rise to him, the guy's probably like, run that by me again? You want me to do what? (laughs) Do you understand I've been here 38 years You're telling me to get up? What is this, a joke? I like this, though. I like that Jesus does this here. I like that Jesus commands him to do something that Jesus knows is impossible for him. It is impossible. There's no way he can do it. Because God helps those who can't help themselves in reality. Something that is impossible for him in his own strength something that is impossible for you and for me. This ministers to me, that he talks to us in this way. God always, if you take notes, God always couples his commands with the power and the ability for you and me to obey that command. You think he's going to say, rise, take up your bed and walk to see the man sort of partially stand up and then fumble and fall to the ground? Is that our Lord? Of course not then why is it sometimes we think in our own lives that it doesn't work for us? That what's behind his commands is something different? It's like we said last week, we could take the volume of the scriptures and take it the same way that this man took this command. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Every promise, every command. He gives you the ability and the power to see through to it. And I'm gonna tell you something. There's a great difference. It may seem harsh. But there's a great difference between those I've seen down throughout the years in the body of Christ receive wholeness and fruitfulness and get well physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and those who don't. And here it is. It's those who take his word, step out in faith onto that word, receive that word, and live a life marked by that faith in him. His word and His promise for your life. Because there's going to be a moment of truth in everybody's life where whatever has been my history for 38 years is here and God's promises is here and you're going to believe the one or you're going to believe the other. And you find that if you step out in faith and you believe God's promises, you'll find that His grace is sufficient to see you through To be able to do something that physically on your own would be impossible for you to do. So, this morning, are you addicted to something? Jesus would say, Rise above it. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Are you tied up in bitterness, struggling to forgive? Rise above that. Let it go. Forgive that person you're struggling with paralyzing self-pity, rise above it. Don't focus on that. Don't dwell on those things. But pastor, some of those things are so hard. They're downright impossible. Yes, on our own, in the flesh. Those things are so hard to do. But Jesus would later say, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. He would never ask us to do anything that he won't give us the strength to do. Paul would later say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, one little caveat. Rise, get past this, walk with God. If you get nothing out of today, take that home with you, okay? But one more thing on this verse. Rise, get past this, walk with God. But then leave that issue. Leave that scene behind because, and don't miss this, after Jesus tells this man to rise, he then tells him to what? Take up his bed. In other words, don't leave your mat here. You're not going to need it anymore. You're not coming back to this place. Does that make sense? He didn't want to making a provision for failure. The Bible says make no provision for the flesh. This has probably happened thousands of times in the history of the world, but I'm at church one night. A young man's in service. He hears God calling out to him. He cries out to God, God, help me, deliver me from, fill in the blank, but in his case, it was cigarettes. Lord, help deliver me From cigarettes. And God said, I will help you with that. And he had told me afterwards that he wanted to walk away from that. And I said, well, give me your pack of cigarettes, brother. I'll throw them away for you. And he didn't want to give them to me. Because he thought to himself, well, if I fall, I'm going to waste money buying another pack tomorrow morning. You see? He was leaving his bed He was giving himself a failure provision. So, men, don't keep that video stored away somewhere in case a craving comes up somewhere down the road. All of you, perhaps, some of you, get rid of that backup bottle. Just get rid of it. Throw away his phone number. Whatever it is that's your failure provision. I know it's a little heavy, but I think God's saying, you know what, don't go back. Don't plan to go back to it. I have enough challenges. I have enough sin in my life. I don't have to plan for it. Rise. Take up your bed. As G. Campbell Morgan said, in order to make no provision for a relapse. And then... And walk. And the word walk there means walk about, which means he wanted him to walk about so that others could see him as a testimony of what God did in his life, which is very interesting because Jesus knew the day in which he had healed this man. He could have done it the day before. He could have done it the day after, but he chose to do it this day, which he knew would stir some things up. It says, end of verse nine, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, remember John uses the Jews to describe the religious leaders and not every Jew in Jerusalem. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. These guys have lost touch with reality. Here's a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and this is the greeting? I mean, it should be, Whoa, dude, you're healed. I can't believe it, you can walk, high-five, exciting, something, but no, you broke one of our laws. That's how they greet this man. It's the Sabbath, you're not allowed to carry your bed. Well, he answered them and said, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. By the way, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath by carrying his bed, only the religious leader's extrapolation of their amendment to. There were actually 39 categories that they created of unpermitted work on the Sabbath. And one of them was, and this is actually number 39, you weren't allowed to carry a burden from one place to the next. So he was carrying a burden. It's not like this was like a bed like you would find at the department store or in your bedroom or at a hotel. It's like one of these little mats you'd find at a you know, the health club or something, that you just kind of roll up. And he's walked around with it, and he's carrying a burden. Yet another irony in this passage, a man deprived with the ability to work for thirty years, 38 years is now being accused of working too hard. Unbelievable. <laughs> Guys, I haven't been able to walk, let alone carry my mat for 38 years. Rejoice with me. Look at me. I'm walking. I oh, yeah, we're... We're glad you can walk, but you better be able to run quickly from these stones. We're going to start firing at you here in a minute. How quickly they had turned the conversation. They kept it going. It says in verse 12, then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, there are those, many, who would say that this verse suggests that this man's condition was the result of some sort of sin in his life. Now, it doesn't say that. It could be the case. It is sometimes in the scriptures the case. Oftentimes, it's also not the case. In every case, sickness in general is always the result of sin. Right, The fall of Adam in the garden, and we've all been plagued with sin. We've been born into sin. We've inherited it. So to a certain extent, it's always true. But whether or not specifically this man's condition was a result of some specific sin in his life, we don't know. I don't think that's the point, though, of what Jesus is saying here. I think what he's saying is, living in sin, by the way, young man, now that you're healed can bring about much, much worse effects in your life than being crippled for 38 years. And if you don't believe me, you just ask anyone who lives with the anguish of a decision that they made in the past that haunts them to this day, someone who's in jail, someone who's in rehab, someone who had a few too many when I got behind the wheel of a car and hit someone, no comparison in terms of that mental type of anguish. So what does he say to him? He says, sin no more. Wow, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. Sin no more? What was he supposed to tell him? Sin a little bit less? (laughs) Remember, he's God, by the way. His standard is perfection. His expectation is that we'll struggle, but his standard is perfection. And I don't want to dwell on it. I don't want to spend an hour on it we still got the whole rest of the chapter. No, we're going to finish in a couple of minutes. But what is your goal each day when you wake up? Is your goal to sin a little bit less? Maybe we should challenge ourselves with that. Take it before God. Ask God to help you not sin today. I sinned 37 times yesterday. I'm going for 24. Sin no more, he would say. Not because our standard before him changes based upon whether we sin or not, because we know it's all about his grace, but because there is an effect always that comes with sin. That's why he said sin no more. Because you go out and you do something stupid, and you catch some venereal disease, or you end up in jail and you would have wished you were by the pool still so that's why he says that sin is serious that's why grace is so wonderful that's why grace is so amazing because grace makes up for all the sins more powerful than the sin well what happened to this man after this warning says verse 15 the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well not that it was Jesus who told me to take up my bed and walk he could have said that he could have said oh it was him he was the one who said it so I'm off the hook right which is interesting, because when you think about it, he tells the very men who could have made his life miserable, the religious leaders, exactly what had happened. He told them the truth. And he, they're the first people he told, not his next-door neighbor, not his parents. Look, I'm alive. He goes right to them and said, Jesus made me well. Not Jesus told me to take up my bed and walk. That's what you asked me. Here's the answer to the question. He learned something from Jesus right away. Here's the answer to the question. He is the one who made me well. His faith was real. This morning, we have to be challenged again in our lives to remember that I'm telling you, I'm telling you, listen, pay attention. Your healing that came as a part of His grace gift is more extraordinary than this miracle. Your spiritual awakening to be forgiven of your sins and be a new creation in Christ, going to heaven to rule and reign with him for all of eternity, is more powerful than healing this cripple. So, when someone says, what's different about you, brother? What's different about you, sister? What's the answer? He made me well. He does miracles like this to show off his grace, and I want people to see that. How about you? Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship.